Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hey everybody, we have a general ramble show today, not a review, and I have some call-ins to get to, but before that, I wanted to talk about Minecraft. Yeah, um, some of you may be turning me off about now. <laughs> Trust me, this is going to be about role-playing games, uh, but it's uh, things I've learned about role-playing games by looking at a different game, Minecraft. So uh, most of you are familiar with what Minecraft is. Some of you think of it as, as a kid's game. Um, it is, I suppose. I mean, I got started playing Minecraft like years and years ago before many of the like things that are common today before horses and cats, for instance, and all the, uh, some of the, there were very few biomes back then, et cetera, et cetera. But I got started playing because um, it was something I discovered and I thought my kids would like, and sure enough, of course they did. So we all played together for, I don't know, maybe two years, something like that, and then I kind of put it away. But recently I've gotten back into it through watching Hermitcraft on YouTube and some other things. Um, the joy of like building in that, in that environment, which is just a bunch of virtual Legos, is um, it's immersive, it's relaxing for me. Uh, I like mining. I can mine for ages. You know, I can just grab my picks and torches and go down and just explore a cave and then just branch mine. And I don't know. I sometimes do that during work meetings. Don't don't tell my boss um, because it relaxes me and keeps me from like over processing a little bit. But at any rate, uh, I, uh, what I wanted to talk about was how you learn about a thing by learning about another thing that is similar. Um, let me give that a little bit of better grounding. Uh, they say that uh, the best way to learn the English language is to study another language. Well, I, you know, I say that. I'm not sure who they are. I, I might have made that up. Um, <laughs> but it's true. So when you learn in the English language from the inside as a speaker of English, you know, you learn the parts of speech. You learn how to uh, make sentences and things. You really actually learn more from modeling, like reading and, and knowing what a sentence looks like than you do from analyzing it. In fact, um, you're able to write and speak probably long before you understand the parts of speech. Uh, later, you study it as an object and you learn things like adjectives and adverbs and nouns and sub, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, you, there's no why to that. You just learn how, how it works and what. You learn the how and the what. But when you learn a different language, like Spanish, um, the things that you took for granted in English all of a sudden come into question. Like in Spanish, the, the simplest example here is that the adjectives come after the noun, not before. So Spanish has more of this kind of top-down, like uh, almost like a taxonomical kind of thinking to it. Um, so you you know it's not a fuzzy brown cat; it's a cat fuzzy brown, right? Um, you, you name its attributes after the noun. And knowing that, like once you learn that it's done a different way, you start thinking like, okay, which way is better? Like why? Why do we do it that way in English? Um, why do they do it that way in Spanish? Why the difference? They're related languages, uh, you know, all romantic languages, right? So it, it helps you come at something you're overly familiar with from a new angle and, and you learn it better. You learn things about it. So I've been playing Minecraft a lot lately, uh, last two years, I'd say, year and a half, something like that. And uh, 
it's it's taught me some things about games. I'm not sure how applicable some of this stuff is. Some of it is, I think. But let me go through some kind of bullet points that I've got running around in my head. First of all, uh, one of the I I started out playing hardcore a lot. Now, hardcore Minecraft. Uh, usually in Minecraft, when you die. Uh, you basically lose all the stuff that was on you, uh, uh, unless you die in lava that would burn it up or something like that. It's usually like right where you left it, hanging around for like five minutes. So if you can find your way back, sometimes you can get your stuff back. But you respawn, right? So you have basically endless lives. Uh, well, not basically. You have endless lives. <laughs> uh, I suppose the, the 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 counterpoint to that would be no. That's you just have endless lives. Let's not let's not get too uh, technical. Okay, but in hardcore, you don't have endless lives. You have one life. That's it. One life. And when you die, you're done. You can't get back into the world other than uh, for a little bit of time, you can float around and kind of spectate and look at all the stuff you built. But it, after that, it's gone. There's a trick that involves using cheat codes and stuff like that where you can kind of rescue that, but that's against the nature of the game. And there's a real thrill about playing Minecraft in hardcore because while you're getting all this joy out of building and trying to control your environment and survive and everything, death is right around the corner. Anything could happen, you know? Um, if you're not watching where you step in certain places, like deserts, sometimes you'll just um, be walking along and there'll be a hole that leads down into lava. And if you're not paying attention, you could die immediately there. Like before, you might not even have a way to get out. Like there might not be a step up anywhere. So you're just floating around in lava um, crying because the 30 hours that you've poured into the game is now all gone, right? And I I know that's not for everybody, but man, it's it's got a thrill to it for sure. Now, if you're in it to build lasting things and and to make uh, cool houses and all that kind of stuff, you probably don't want to play hardcore. But I think the, the interesting thing there is, to me, that is a lot about the difference between what I think of as world and story, right? So are you playing in a world or are you playing a story? And if you're playing a story, you want things to persist. You want to like have some plot immunity um, because you're trying, to, you're trying to manufacture a story. I prefer playing worlds, and what I mean by that is um, story in a world, when you're playing the world, story is incidental, um, almost accidental, right? When you think about how real life works, for most people, some people are very driven. Like I used to be an advisor at a university. Um, I've been I worked uh, in college administration and uh, was a professor um, for a major university in the Midwest. But one of the jobs that I had early on was an academic advisor, and I'd have students that would come in, and some would they would really call in a fall on a spectrum. There there would be some students who say, um, "I want to be a doctor. I want to do pre med. That's it." My mind's made up, set me up, let's go. And they were easy as advisors. I would do that for them, knowing that they might change their mind at some point, but um, they had picked a major that really was pretty flexible in the sense that they're gonna be taking harder classes than they would normally need to. So if they switch into philosophy, they're good to go. Um, <laughs> and then there was the other end of the spectrum where they would come in and I would say, well, what are you thinking? Do you have a major in mind? Nope, okay. Well, what did you like in high school? Did you like math? Nah, I didn't like math. Um, oh, so you're an English kid? You liked English? Nah, not really. Well, what did you like? Eh, it was all okay. Like, please help me out, right? Like, <laughs> at that point, after about 
I don't know, four or five minutes of conversational digging, I would say, okay, I'm just going to set you up with some freshman classes, right? That's basically what they want me to do. And I would just set them up with a run of classes and kind of caution them if they wanted to go into the sciences, they might want a harder math than this and it could put them, you know, into a situation that was longer than four years, yada, yada, yada. But there were those kids in the middle who basically said, well, I don't know, I want to be either, either um, um, I either want to go into nursing or maybe elementary education. Now, those sound like they're really far apart, but they aren't necessarily. Um, a lot of times those people were thinking nursing like uh, they wanted to go into uh, like uh, natal care centers or something, right? And I would uh, tell them about other opportunities like speech pathology that kind of sits in the middle of that where you have, you can work with children um, and you have cases and it's clinical, but there's no vomiting. Um, and there's also no like large classrooms where you've got 30 people tugging on your, um, on your shirt tail at the same time telling you they need to go to the bathroom or whatever. So, you know, and so I would try to build a flexible schedule for them. So where was I going with that? Holy cow. So uh, in real life, some people have a story in mind at the outset right? They, they, their life is very organized toward a specific goal. They are going to become a doctor. That's their story. That's the story they want to tell about their lives. Um, I would say that's probably, you know, less than 20% of, of humanity. I could be wrong about that, but, uh, then there's, maybe it's because I'm on the other end of the spectrum a little bit. Um, I get excited. I'm really in the middle there. I get excited about a lot of ideas, but I'm flexible and kind of unfocused, right? So there's the rest of us who experience life as it comes and take, uh, we have goals, but they're more like short-term goals in the next couple of years, right? Or they're ideas about what we're going to become, but we're open to changing those ideas as the environment changes, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you look back over your life, your story is really more about what you remember and how you choose to tell it. Like it's an, it's an, it's a, it's a factor of your memory and your organizational um, impulses on your memory as to how you tell your story. And in that sense, story is very accidental. There are things that happen to you, like I've got a story about how um, I kept looking at those motorized scooters and thought they would be fun to ride. And then one day I saw a fat person on one. I thought, yeah, but you know, fat people can do it too. Um, old people can do it too, blah, blah, blah. I go out, I ride a scooter, have fun for about 15 minutes, and then I wreck it and bust both my elbows, knocking them out of joint and shattering elbow joints and end up in the hospital um, where I got reconstructive surgery and some metal parts on both my elbows. And you know, I'm fine now, um, <laughs> other than maybe losing about an inch of my reach and having some odd pains um, every now and then, you know, kind of weather-wise elbows, if you will. But, uh, you know, that story is part intent and part accident, right? <laughs> A big part of that story is accident. Uh, that story isn't nearly as interesting if the accident doesn't happen. So I, uh, so for me, like when you play hardcore mode in Minecraft, it's like playing the world, right? You are just doing your best to kind of make a make your way in the world, whatever it takes. Um, you're building to last, but not in the sense that you know it could all end in any, at any time, right? So you have to like come up with ideas for what you want to do and those change uh, based on what you find in the environment uh, that can help you along. Sometimes you choose strategies like farming to get where you want to go and sometimes you trade with villagers instead uh, because there's a village nearby. But basically you, you take what you're given and you make something out of it and um, only when you die does it really become a story. Like the whole time you're immersed in it you're just doing things, right? Um, you're, you're building towards something like, oh I, I, I need to get, um, I want to get an iron suit of armor, and then you want a diamond suit of armor. I want a, a reliable food source, so I'm going to build a chicken farm or whatever. Um, 
And so each one of the things requires you to go do things like quest for little things, right? Um, like you need to go into the nether to get a piece of quartz to build a redstone for your chicken farm. Okay. And as you're doing these things, they're just all built around uh, building control over your environment. But when you die, you look back and you tell yourself a story about like, ah, oh, that was cool. Remember I, I settled near that village and I built that cool house and then the villager barn and like, you know, uh, I can't believe I stepped in lava, um, you know, or got killed by that skeleton or whatever. Uh, and uh, sometimes it feels a little capricious, like how you die, just like in uh, old school games where you have like that save or die mechanic, right? Uh, or poison, or you know, a wizard puts you to sleep. You only go to saving throw, and then somebody comes along and cuts your throat. Uh, <laughs> it can be very harsh, and so hardcore isn't always. It's not for everybody, and it's not fun to play endlessly. Like it's fun to play in some sometimes, and it's not in others. I don't know. It just depends on who you are, I guess. Um, the story building, you know, is more like when you start a world and you're going to, you know that you can respawn. You don't necessarily want to die, but it's not the end of the world. Literally not the end of the world uh, to die. And you get to build towards something. You have more long-term goals. Like this is what I want my world to look like is how I'm going to put my stamp on the world. Right. Um, and so that that's one thing that Minecraft taught me. Uh, not all these will be so long-winded, I hope. Um, <laughs> I'm in a chatty mood today. Sorry. Lots of thoughts on my drive-in this morning. Uh, the second thing is that inventory management is fun for a while, right? Um, <laughs> in Minecraft, you have, uh, I don't I don't know the exact number. I think it's like 24 or something like that, slots. Uh, so when you look in your inventory, on like basically in your pockets, uh, you get a view that has a series of three rows of boxes. And in those boxes, you can put items, right? And some items stack and some don't, meaning I can put uh, three bales of hay in one slot, but I can only put... Um, and I can put three buckets in one slot. But once I fill a bucket with water or lava, it goes in its own slot. So if I have three buckets full of lava, that's three slots. But I have three empty buckets, it's one slot. So you, you do all this management of your inventory. And then you, you can build uh, you know boxes, chests, barrels, things like that to put your stuff into your overflow, if you will. But there's a big part of the game where you're constantly um, emptying junk out of your pockets and organizing your inventory so that it's useful and uh, taking stock of what you have and putting more in there. And that may not sound like fun to everybody, but there is a definite component of that that is fun. And some people enjoy inventory management. But what I have thought about from this is uh, everything in Minecraft has durability, um, meaning it will break and erode or get used up, right? Um, and some things have more durability than others. A diamond sword is far more durable than a wooden sword. Uh, and that that in itself I think is interesting. So in a lot of old school games, uh, people will say, you know, old D&D is just inventory management. And there is a big component of that. But uh, the funny thing is we track some things and not others. So we don't blink twice about having a, a quill of 20 arrows and counting those arrows off and trying to recover arrows and that kind of stuff. But um, at the same time, we don't blink twice at having a sword that lasts you for 20 sessions, right? I mean, swords get nicked up, they bend, they break, they, um, they lose their temper. Uh, there's many ways that a sword, it has more durability than arrows, right? Because arrows are expendable, but a sword is also expendable on a, a, in the long term. Now, if you take good care of your sword and you don't um, hack at orcs with iron collars, um, as as uh, wow, I can't think. Of, I can't believe I forgot his name. Uh, the dwarf from Lord of the Rings. 
uh, I want to say Durin, of course, that's the ancestral dwarf. Um, Gimli, holy cow. Who would have thought I'd ever forget that? How many times have I read Lord of the Rings? All right, you were all shouting it at me. So this is uh, that makes the podcast more participatory anyway. So <clears throat> as long as you don't swing at orcs with iron collars, uh, you're probably not going to lose your weapon, right? Like you take good care of it, it could last you for a long time. And that's true in real life as well. There are swords that get passed down from you know generation to generation, but they weren't heavy use swords probably, right? A sword that's used in war is going to get used up. Uh, and uh, even after a long day of battle, it's probably done. Right. Uh, if if you're in a major battle and you're swinging at people in armor, your sword is going to need some serious care at the end of that. So is your armor. We don't mess around with that too much. Uh, some RPGs do that a little bit. Others don't. I guess what I'm thinking is I feel like I feel like you should either you you, you pick your point of granularity there. But I kind of feel like you should be consistent and either hand wave it all or track it all um, and come up. You either should just say I'm not worried about it. You know, like you have arrows, and after a while, we'll decide that you've shot enough arrows. You probably need to buy some more, right? But we're not going to count them, uh, just like we're not going to decide when your sword's broken. But the other end of that spectrum is, if I'm going to count every arrow, then maybe I need to come up with a practical method for deciding when, you know, is it on critical misses that a sword can get bent or broken or notched? Um, you know, is it, how am I going to wear out a sword equally? Like, how's it, how am I going to make that interesting as well? Okay. So let me get off of inventory because that's just not a fun subject for some people. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. I feel like it's pretty polarizing. Not too many people are, meh, whatever, you know, about inventory. <laughs> um, let's talk about biomes. In Minecraft, you have different types of terrain. And each type of terrain, whether it's savanna or um, lush caves or, or uh, extreme hills, whatever, they have a number of things about them. They have wildlife that only appear there. So like you only see foxes and spruce forests. Um, they, have, um, they have different plants. that So the flora and fauna are different. Sometimes they have different weather. Um, but I think the biggest thing I just want to talk about is like the look and feel, the color scheme, right? They have different color schemes. Even the color of grass changes when you go from a meadow biome to a swamp biome or to a savanna biome. Um, you know, the grass is greener, literally, in the, in, on the other side of the fence because it's, if it's in the meadow, it's greener uh, than it is in the swamp or the savanna. And I don't know that as GMs we do a good enough job of signaling what's over there, right? Like when I'm in Minecraft, I can look to my left, to my right, look ahead, look behind, and I can see other biomes, right? I can tell if I'm close to another biome. Oh, look, over there's a desert, and I know what I can get in a desert. I can get cactus, which will help me make green dye. I can't do that any other way, right? So if I want green dye because I want my horse to have green leather armor and I want a green bed or whatever, I'm gonna have to go um, to the desert and chop down some cactuses. Also, while I'm there, some cacti, cactuses, cacti. Um, also, while I'm there, maybe I'll find a desert temple, right? And I can raid that. But I can't find a desert temple in the jungle. You know why? Because it's a desert temple. So, <laughs> so I mean, I, I like this idea that you can only find certain things in certain places and signaling terrain changes um, heavily, right? So that if you're in a, like literally if your characters are standing in a hex, right? And a hex is maybe three miles or six miles, you know, vision goes beyond that. So as long as they're not in a valley or something, if they get to a high point, they can look around and maybe they could see that over to their left, there's a swamp and in the south, there's a, a river valley or something. Uh, and we should do more of that. And um, also, I guess 
alongside of that is the idea of availability of items. Uh, so like I mentioned, you know, you can't get a cactus in a meadow biome, right? Which means you can't get green dye. And I think there are some things that we need to do better at um, not making them available everywhere. One of my complaints about kind of modern D&D, and this really is more about, less about the game in some ways, although the game encourages this, uh, it's more about how it's jammed, is the rampant availability of magic items, right? So there are certain magic items that used to be kind of special, and now it feels like, you know, any reasonable side town, you can go just pick one up and it's got a fixed cost to it. And I don't love that, right? I like worlds where there's only one girdle of giant strength and you might not know where it is and you might never find it in the game. But if you do, you're the only one that has it. So um, in Minecraft, you have, if, if you know Minecraft, it's, it's a lot about, um, not just about inventory management, but about crafting your way up from one point to the next. So uh, I'll give you a quick illustration. The first thing you do in a Minecraft world, they drop you into a world. Typically, you're going to walk over to a tree and you're going to punch it. And you think, why would I punch a tree? Uh, well, in real life, that's not a great idea. In Minecraft, you're punching a tree to punch it down to get logs. And you take the logs and you turn them into wooden planks. And then you take the planks and you build a crafting bench. Um, when you're when you don't have a crafting bench, you just have a little square of uh, two by two that you can put items into to make things. So crafting bench, you just fill all four of those squares with planks and you get a crafting bench. And then once you have a crafting bench and you look at it and right click on it, then you get a three by three squares. And you can build things in there like uh, a bucket is, uh, is a V shape of iron ingots, right? So you have to go down and mine iron ore, so you have to make a pick. <laughs> you have to go down, you have to, you have to make a pick, you have to get some stone, and then you have to make a stone pick, and then you mine iron ore, you take the iron ore, you make a furnace, you stick the ore in the furnace, um, you burn some wood or some coal in the furnace to smelt the iron into ingots, and then you take the ingots and you lay them out in a, in a V in your crafting bench, and you get a bucket, right? And a bucket's useful, <laughs> really useful, actually. It's one of the most useful things in the game. So you're constantly building, right? Where was I going with that? Okay, so so not all materials, though, that you need are available um, to you directly. Like, they're either in your biome or you have to go to another biome to get them. Some things you can only get by trading with villagers and some things you can only get in uh, by taking them away from monsters, right? Um, and so there's just these kind of like this availability issue that I think is really cool, like making sure that uh, any that things that characters want aren't always just in the shop in town, right? Okay. Um, moving on, uh, I think there's just this. Uh, the last three here are pretty short, so I've left the short ones to the end. There's just the straight idea of uh, chunk crawling, or or in in RPGs is hex crawling, but in uh, Minecraft there's delving and chunk crawling and mapping, right? So. Chunk crawling, chunk just refers to an area in the game. It's X by X. I don't know exactly how many blocks it is by how many blocks, but it's it's a it was it's like saying acres in real life, right? So, um, you know, just exploring the world because it's randomly generated and sometimes you get this breathtaking terrain. Um, you know, sometimes Minecraft's fun just to find a hill and watch the sunset. It's it's strange that way. It's really immersive, right? 
And I mentioned before that I love to cave. I can just, I can mine and cave forever. And so I'm a delver, I'm a mole, right? I'm a dwarf. And um, there's that joy of just straight line roaming where you just want to go to a new place. Like you've been in the meadows for a long time. You want to go see what a jungle's like. And you might have to travel thousands of blocks to get to a jungle, to experience a jungle. And I think we do that in gaming sometimes too. Um, like we might say, oh, it'd be really cool to have a bitter, like cold setting, right? So you pull out Frostgrave or uh, I want to go into the desert. So you pull out... Um, Dark Sun, right? Uh, sometimes you're switching game systems. Sometimes you're switching settings. Sometimes you're just moving to a different hex in your map. But there is that joy of exchanging the old for the new. So when your characters sort of have explored an area and they really know an area too well, maybe it's time to strike out and hit a new biome, right? Uh, get something weird and different to you. Uh, go to a place where you don't know the language. Go to a place where you don't know how to cook anything because you, know, you don't have the standard ingredients. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. The last two things, uh, one of them is just about immersion, and this is really simple. You know, Minecraft's immersive because you see it uh, through the eyes of your character. It's a first-person game. Now, there are camera angles. You can pull back and look at yourself from above or behind or whatever, or even in front. And that is less immersive. Um, a lot of times YouTubers do that, right, to kind of uh, to make a better visual story for you. But when you're playing the game, I don't know too many people that step outside of their characters, right, when they're playing the game. Because the joy is the immersion. And the less you step out of your character, really the better. And that doesn't that's not a judgment about um, director stance versus actor stance or um, uh, using funny voices or you know staying quote unquote staying in character all the time but it does mean that if what you love is immersion then you should do your damnedest to like stay in stay behind the eyes of your characters and experience the world through your character right there's a lot of joy in that um, and sometimes you forget that sometimes you enjoy that but forget to do it and then pretty soon the game starts to feel kind of mechanical and and uh, third person, you know, like an other, not not something you're in, but something you're fiddling with. And it, and if you're starting to kind of get tired and worn down or whatever, sometimes just uh, going back to immersion will rescue the game for you. You might have to talk to your GM about descriptions and say like, look, I'm not really seeing the world. Can you help me see the world? And uh, maybe not do it as a criticism, right? Because uh, GMs, myself included, don't like to just necessarily be criticized without any... Um, any idea of what to do. Uh, but you can always just ask questions too. Always ask questions of the GM. Like, what are the walls like? Are they wet? Are they dry? You know, uh, in this cave, have they been worked? Is it all natural? Um, are there stalagmites and stalactites? Are there any standing water? Uh, what's the visibility like? You know, is it is it clear as far as my torch shines or is it kind of misty, foggy? Uh, what's the smell like? And I know you'll probably drive them nuts at some point, so don't go too far with that. But if you feel like your GM isn't describing enough, don't just say, hey, describe the world better. Ask lots of questions. They'll get the, they'll get the hint. Pretty soon they'll start providing more of that for you and anticipating uh, the questions rather than waiting for you to ask them, right? So um, yeah, uh, go for immersion and own it, right? Like you can, you can create a more immersive game for everybody by getting inside of that, the head of your character, being in character, asking questions about what you're experiencing, those kind of things. Or you can just, you know what? You can just make it up. You, you can just, you can, I mean, if the GM's okay with that, you can just start talking about like, 
oh man, I just stepped in a puddle of water. Now my boots are soggy, right? Like <laughs> the GM will tell you, I'm like, no, no, there's no water here. Okay, fine. Uh, that That's when you need to start asking questions, I guess. But a lot of GMs will let you kind of run with that stuff, you know, to add, because you're adding to the, the fiction, you're adding to the environment, the immersion of everybody. Okay, um, the last one. Uh, I've talked about this a little bit already sideways, but it's about mastering in-game logic. Now, Minecraft is all about recipes, if, if you will. Um, and I mentioned like how what it looks like to make a bucket or let's, let's take a bed. Um, a bed, you go out and kill some sheep or shear some sheep to get their wool. Shear some sheep, that's hard to say. Um, and when you're opening up your, your, your uh, crafting bench, you put three wool across the top, has to be the same color because um, there are different colored sheep. Uh, three wool across the top and then three planks underneath and that makes a bed. And you can kind of visualize that, right? It looks like a mattress laying on top of a frame. And you can take dye and make your bed different colors, etc. But it's all about knowing these recipes. Now, the game uh, used to be you had to know the recipes. Now there's a little guide where you can click on the thing you want to make and I'll show you the recipe. But part of the fun is memorizing those recipes and, it, and the game goes faster if you know those recipes, right? There's a kind of mastery in knowing uh, not only how to make something, but what you can make out of something. Um, all the different, you know, I, I, I might run into a rabbit. Um, well, my cat, so you can have a cat in Minecraft and sometimes my cat will bring me uh, a rabbit skin. And then I think, well, what can I do with a rabbit skin, right? And knowing all the things that you can do with a rabbit skin, there's not much by the way, but knowing all the things that you can do with a rabbit skin, um, is interesting, right? All of a sudden, that every every you evaluate everything in the world as a usable item, and I think that's part of system mastery. Whether you're talking about, you know, recipes that you memorize, which is a lot like memorizing spells or something in a game, or whether you're talking about looking at everything around you and knowing what the use of it is, that's more player skill, right? Like that's more thinking about your environment and thinking. Um, oh, okay, there are stalagmites and stalactites here and I don't have a weapon. I'm going to break off a stalactite and try to use it as a club. Now, maybe it'll just shatter. Probably would in real life. But, you know, you're, at least you're thinking about the environment. Or if there's stalactites, maybe you lure um, something over a cliff or shove them over a cliff and hope they get impaled on the stalagmites below, right? Um, that's using, that's thinking of the use of any given thing and not necessarily the obvious use, right? Like stalagmites and stalactites aren't made to be impaling weapons or bludgeoning weapons, but you know what? Um, sometimes, uh, as uh, Freud says, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but most of the time for Freud, it wasn't a cigar, right? It was something else entirely. So being able to, excuse me, <clears throat> being able to look at your uh, world creatively and think about all the uses for a thing is a real skill. Um, and knowing knowing how your things work is a real skill. And they're two different. Those are that's the kind of argument a lot of times between player skill and system mastery. Um, they're both a form of knowing the game, right? And uh, you need both. You should be good at both. Uh, it's it's probably more. Um, in some ways, it's more. I don't know which is more useful. I'm, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm going to stay away from that because I'll just make value statements. Um, I'm a creative person, so I probably value player skill over system mastery. But I would say nine times out of ten, system mastery is probably more relevant. <laughs> uh, it just depends on your game, right, and how you want to have fun. So, man, I've talked for a long time. That's a half hour, uh, but I still want to do some of these call-ins. So let's get to those. 
Since I'm already running long on time, I'm going to play all of these call-ins together and then maybe comment on a few of them. Not all of them need comments. Some of them I just enjoy because they're commentary on their own. But just uh, so you know, upcoming, we, we first have Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist Presents podcast. Uh, links to all these will be in the show notes. And then we have Dennis from the Netherlands, I believe. And I think they have their own podcast in uh, not English. <laughs> so... so um, in Dutch, I presume. And so I don't know if I have a link to that, but uh, he's got some great uh, stuff to say and a really good question that might be its own podcast. And then we have uh, Chris Shorb. Chris Shorb, I don't remember if he has a podcast, but I know he actually wrote alongside me for some of the Gauntlet publications, the early stuff, the um, Codex, and I know he's collected in the, the Codex Volume 1, and I forget which Codex he wrote in, but um, I also wrote some things in there. Um, B.J. Boyd, who is uh, the arcane alienist, uh, so he has a, a podcast called that, and he calls in about Carcass Crawler. And then finally, Cody Mazza of the No Save For You podcast. I feel like I might have said the name of his podcast wrong in an earlier episode, but it's like the Seinfeld Soup Nazi, um, as, if, as if he were an OSR gamer. No, no Save For You! Right. So um, here they are, and let's hear what they have to say. Hey, Ray, it seems like it's going to be fun to talk about music, so let's keep talking. Interesting that we departed Rush at the same time. I think while, what's inter- what in- is interesting is about that time, while you went punk, I went thrash, which is kind of like punk but for metal, right? So I think I started listening to Metallica, and Anthrax, and um, Megadeth, and but also Melvins, and um, Death Angel, right, so West Coast Thrash, so I'd love to hear what you were listening to, and how you got into punk, and what you listened to in punk, because they're all related according to my definitive metal family tree thing, so uh, yeah, I, I love this kind of raw energy music, that is all interrelated, that's called punk and metal. So uh, love to hear from you. Thanks again for your fun podcasts. Hey, Ray. Just wanted to say thank you for answering my question on combat in rules systems. I think the poker chips are a great idea. Um, I was thinking about something along the same lines using dice as counters, but uh, then you got those numbers again. You're right. I think that the poker chips are way more elegant. Anyway, I will call in with more questions, I'm sure. One that I have right now that might interest you since you've also taught at university, I think, um, is I'm a teacher of creative writing here in the Netherlands and together with a colleague who is also my GM, um, I'm developing a course on role-playing tactics for writers. So what can writers take from role-playing games in their practice as writers? So, for example, can we use random tables? Can we use mechanics when we're stuck? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Ray, it's Chris Shorb. How you doing? Uh, I am in uh, Nissan Truck Studios here, giving you a holler about um, your most recent issue, uh, episode 305, and you were talking about uh, min-maxing. Uh, the rest of the episode was cool. I'd like to hear about that Rush movie. I didn't even know there, there was a Rush movie, so that was cool to hear about. But min-maxing, I realized, it just kind of came to me as you were talking, that really there's something about when you're playing in a pre-published adventure 
if you are, if you don't min-max, the, if you play a suboptimal character, the reason to play for me to play a suboptimal character is because they'll, funny things will happen and that will lead to interesting outcomes and the direction of the story will go in a totally different direction. Uh, I'm going to come back for phase two here. Yeah, so the, you're playing a suboptimal character and your failure is going to lead to an interesting outcome. That's kind of why you might want to play a suboptimal character. But that can only happen if in the adventure is open, wide open enough to allow that to happen. But a lot of these adventures, you know, I don't want to use the term railroad, but they have a like plot endpoint. And so you kind of have to get to that plot endpoint. And there's no like room if you fail to have like, oh, you failed. So then this totally different thing happens and you go off in a totally different direction. I guess in a sandbox homebrew campaign that can work and playing suboptimal character would be really super interesting. But, uh, you know, if you're playing in a published adventure, I just don't see a reason to play a suboptimal character. Play the best character you can to try to get to the end of that plot to see what the denouement is. That's at least my opinion. Take it easy. Bye. Hi, Ray. It's BJ from the Arcane Alienist. Um, I really enjoyed your review of Carcass Crawler. I, I have my copy. <laughs> so I, I, I think I'd said to people I wish I'd had that before I started up my old school essentials campaign because a lot of the stuff that's in it, I like firearms and a couple of other things I, I added and just kind of made up my own house rules and probably would have just gone with, with the ones from the official OSE versions of them. And I think I will adopt the firearm rules instead of the ones I had been using. So great review. I also scratched my head on trying to figure out what that firing, the spread mechanism of the blunderbuss was. I even got out a piece of paper and tried to graph it out. And as near as I can figure, the idea maybe is that you, let's see, what's the range on that thing? Um, 40 feet is that you would kind of draw a straight line from the the character for 40 feet to out to 40 feet and that for the first 10 feet which is short range it would be anybody in the line of fire and then at the medium range it would be anybody within five feet of that line and then at the long range it would be anybody within 10 feet of that line but i reading it again after listening to your episode i'm not sure if i was even clear on that it occurred to me to just treat it like a cone, like a like a breath weapon, even though it would be against AC instead of a saving throw, but just treat it like a forty foot cone that emanates out from the uh, from the the character or, or the NPC, whatever the case may be that's using it. Anyway, enjoyed the episode. Thanks. Hey Ray, it's Cody. I uh, just got done listening to your episode on Carcass Crawler, and um, I also have the zine, and I think it's really, really well done. I'm very satisfied with the purchase, um, and plan to immediately implement the extras into my games going forward. Um, I did have some thoughts. I thought, um, you mentioned it briefly, how you thought it was weird about introducing classes with percentiles, but then changing these percentiles to D6. Um, and I thought, why not do the same thing to these new classes? Just uh, change it to X and six chance, and then give the the players some points to drop around on their specific uh, spells or magical effects they want to have for their class. So it's kind of like a build your own wizard or build your own cleric type. Um, I thought that could be cool, and I might try that out. Anyway, uh, keep up the good work, man, and I look forward to future episodes later. Okay. I've tried to record answers to these several times or my thoughts on these call-ins several times, but between allergies and my rambling, um, just 
you know, I'm so unformed on a lot of these things uh, because I have almost too much to say. I have too much to say about, uh, you know, music to put into a five-minute soundbite. Um, I have too much to say about playing characters versus, um, you know, like playing optimal, suboptimal based on the situation. It's just too much to say. Ah, my head's exploding. So I, I'm not going to try. <laughs> I'm not going to try. I'm just going to address one of these. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Dennis's question about creative writing. Uh, he's correct. I did teach. Uh, I was a professor and an administrator at a Midwestern university, and I taught English composition, not creative writing, but composition, uh, and I taught it to both basic writers and honor students, so I kind of saw both ends of the spectrum, and I taught both uh, you know, basic composition and then like the one that's based on uh, literature and research papers, which is usually the kind of two classes that that in America you, you typically have two English classes required and the first one is just essays and the second one is more how to do a research paper and um, how to respond critically to uh, content that you read. And so I did both of those and uh, I, I have myself taken creative writing classes and I like to do creative writing. And I know where you're coming from when you ask that question. I feel like you're probably better able to answer that question than I am. But I do see the value of certain things for writers for sure. Uh, the first thing I think about is the more generic tools like the uh, Mythic GM emulator and my version of that, which is kind of boiled down into something a, a lot more pocketable and maybe usable um, without a lot of experience, the Oracle, right? And you can find that on my itch.io page for free. Uh, and those things are, are really great if you already have some tropes and, and your kind of characters and everything in mind. Uh, those can be really good to help you just move through, you know, successive scenes and things to, to try to generate um, interesting ideas for your story. Uh, I, I wanted to do a mashup a while back. I was playing with my own Oracle and I just had some time to myself. I think I was in an airport or something. And I wanted to do a mashup between the kind of country doctor trope. So I love James Harriet and the, the you know, All Creatures Great and Small series. Uh, I like the TV series, but I really like the books. And I've read the books uh, multiple times. I haven't ever seen the show that Jane Seymour did, but there was like a Dr. Quinn medicine woman or something like that. And she was like a frontier doctor. And I suspect that's kind of in that vein. Um, I've liked all those medical dramas. Like when I was a kid, we watched Quincy um, you know, and, and I, I went through the phase like everybody else and watched ER when it was out. And, and, you know, I've watched a number of medical dramas that I've liked. I like house, even though it was corny, you know, it was, um, it was, uh, that was a mashup between medical drama and, uh, Sherlock Holmes, right? Because there was house and Wilson as opposed to Holmes and Watson in case you didn't figure that one out. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I wanted to do a mashup between the country doctor idea and, uh, you know, fantasy weird fantasy right and especially um hobbits and hobbiton like that kind of rural hobbit life so i invented a character named farley he was a hobbit doctor and um basically he's just making the rounds in a hobbiton like setting and uh running into some weird stuff right and so i started with that premise and i started working it out and played uh two or three sessions of that and it was writing down as i went kind of like really mostly after the fact i would i'd write make little like one-liner notes for myself as i was as i was playing it out um and then i went back and sort of wrote it into a story but the it was great because it was you start with a little fictional conceit of some kind 
Like, um, he goes to dispense some dewormer medicine for this guy's cows, but there's a weird smell coming from the moors next door. Like, um, you know, what, it, uh, what is it? What, what is it? You know, like, so then you start asking questions about it. Like, is it a, is it a rotten smell? Is it a, you know, and you, then you, and so basically you come up with these fictional questions. Like you, you imagine the situation and you come up with some questions and then you roll the dice. And so that is like the creative windsock, if you will, it points in a direction, you know? So you roll the dice, you're like, does, does it smell, you know, rotten? No, but right. Okay. Well, no, but it, it smells, uh, it's got a sickly sweet smell. Okay. Ooh, what you know? What's that? And like, um, and so, or you know, so you just kind of followed this a little bit, and you just go back and forth between the fiction and this uh, and this mechanic. And the mechanic suggests, uh, as you interpret the dice, it suggests more fiction, and as you invent more fiction, it suggests opportunities for roles. And so the two feed each other. Uh, and so I really like that. Now, if you wanted to um, have more like story generation ideas that are more like uh, plot oriented or character oriented, you might want some different. There are plenty of other right like table driven things out there. Um, I want to say is it CGRE or uh, I've got a number of these that I've looked at. One of them kind of did characters, but mostly all these things are just random tables, right? And and structures for random tables. And so I think. I could. I know, like in my own sorcerers and cell swords, I have a very quick story generator in there that is based on uh, because the whole game is based on lasers and feelings by John Harper, and he has a story generator in his. So I've got a story generator in mine, but I rewrote the story generator to kind of match the kinds of things that I wanted. Right? I wanted more of a Thundar the Barbarian Saturday morning cartoon sword and sorcery feel. Um, he was going for more of a, a corny Star Trek feel, uh, like original Star Trek but on the on the goofier end of that. And so um the act of the act of writing a table if you've never written a random table, that in itself could be an interesting creative exercise like if you were going to if you had an idea for a novel and then or or a genre that you wanted to write in and then you made a random table of things and characters and whatever else for that and then you used those tables um you you sort of played both ends of that role, right? Like you invented all the places the story could go, but then you don't necessarily fully control where the story goes. You you let it be this kind of oracle for yourself. But or you could just use ones that are out there. I mean, there's plenty of really cool uh, table oriented, like there's Tome of Adventure Design, which is nothing but tables related to fantasy. So if you want to write fantasy, you know that's a great place. That's a great reference to have on your shelf. Um, I was trying to think of what the commensurative or comparative ones would be in sci-fi. And I can't think of what I would use as far as a story generator or or idea generator for sci-fi. Maybe somebody else can call in and tell me. I know there's one out there for pulp, pulp fiction stories. I think it was in like the, was it Thrilling Tales? I'm, I'm going to try to find some links to these. I'll just throw whatever I can find in the show notes. But I, I do, I think that's a really cool idea to, to um, introduce some of this to your creative writing class the only thing i would say is you know they're not gamers um probably maybe um just i would assume they're not gamers i would assume every person in the class is not a gamer so i would keep it really simple like i might give everybody a a 2d6 you know or 3d6 and and like uh and a d20 or something like that and introduce them to to one particular element like i would i mean i don't know why i'm i'm not really one to pump my own stuff but i actually think my little the oracle is a pretty good little tool um and it's it's um 
I would never just hand them the Mythic GM emulator for two reasons. One, I've said it before, the art's offensive um, in the version that I've seen. And uh, that's probably the most important reason. But the other reason is it's just way too much, right? It's just very gamey and, like, really deep. And, and um, that's cool, but, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't want to ask somebody to read a 40-page book before they did a creative writing exercise. Um, the idea is to something that you can teach quickly, right? You want to be able to introduce the whole thing to them in five, ten minutes, and then have them kind of write their way through a little solo story with it. Um, or you want to give them a, you know, an exercise and say, hey, we're, we're writing a, a story tonight. We're going to write an exercise. Imagine you're a, an adventurer in a, in a you know, strange jungle and you run across some ancient ruins. Here's, here's some tables. Uh, you have to roll on these tables and then write about what you get, right? Um, and I think that, like, for me, the, the Sorcerers and Swords game... One of my favorite things about that is to come to the table with no preconceived ideas and to roll a story, you know. So you might get, um, I'll, try to, I'll try to remember my own stuff here. It has been a little while since I played Sorcerers and Cell Swords, but the first table is you start in, right? And, it, and then it names different places you could start. So I might, you might start in, uh, you start on the coast of, a, of an endless sea, okay? Right? Um, and then I think there's a, like a bad guy table, so, or the problem is, the problem is um, endless war, right? Okay, so you're on the shore of a sea, and you're in the midst of an endless war, um, and uh, the bad guy is an evil lich queen. I don't remember if that's the bone queen. Let's call it the bone queen. I think there's something like that in my tables. And uh, the twist is that uh, the the bad person may not really be the bad person, right? Like I don't, I, again, I don't remember the exact wording, but like, okay, now I've got, I'm, uh, I know where the story starts. It's on the shore of a sea. Why does it start on the shore of a sea? I don't know. Do the characters live in a fishing town? Um, did something wash up on the sea? That's a clue to what's going on. Uh, but I do know that everybody knows there's a bit of war been going on for ages and, uh, the Bone Queen is on one side of that war, so I can ask myself who's on the other side of that war and I can roll again to get somebody else or I could just make it up. Um, and uh, but I know that the twist is that everybody thinks the Bone Queen is the bad, is the is evil and has the you know. But maybe 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 she's not the problem, right? Maybe um, maybe there's a rotting disease out there that everything's dying and she's actually trying to combat it somehow by learning the necromantic arts and and working from you know the inside to like fix this plague problem. Maybe it's like The Walking Dead, but the but there's some. Uh, I mean, I've only seen a season and a half of that, but uh, maybe it's that kind of idea that there's a, a worldwide plague of something happening and people are dying, and um, and it's a necromancer who's trying to figure it all out. But in the end, um, the stuff she animates, um, unfortunately, um, you know, reaches civilized lands and causes problems, right? Like, or or maybe that's maybe she isn't creating those things, and everybody just assumes she is. Uh, but the plague is making these violent zombie creatures, skeleton creatures, whatever, and. Uh, yeah, she's racing to like get ahead of it when everybody thinks she's actually the one causing it. Okay, so there, like you know, for me that's you know that's that really feeds the creative juices, right? Um, and that's awesome. I think it like you could it may not be the story you're the most in love with. It's not the one you've been burning to write. But as you know, uh, a friend of mine used to say like creative writing what it takes is the iron butt disease. That friend of mine, by the way, is John Oak Dalton, and he knows what he's talking about because in his spare time, and, and he, like I do, have, has a fairly intensive day job, so um, we do all of this in our 
in our off hours, but he writes direct-to-DVD style horror movies and has written a bunch of them and even directed a few, and I'll link his IMDb page in the show notes, and I'd encourage you to go check some of his work out, but um, I think he knows what he's talking about when he says, you know, you need to develop an iron butt, which means stick your butt in a chair and stay there until you've written something, right? And then stay there longer and write more and stay there longer and write more. Like, you, you can't, you have to work at it. I used to laugh at, so I was, I was an art major as an undergrad. I finished my uh, fine arts degree. And uh, there were all these people that would tell me they, you know, when they'd find out that I was an artist, they'd, they'd say, uh, and was studying art, they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm an artist too. And I'm, and a, or I'm a writer or whatever. And I always was really kind of in a nasty way tempted to say, yeah, what do you, you know, what do you, what, what are you drawing right now? Or what are you writing right now? And, or when did you last write? Um, and you know, if they're not actively engaged in doing the thing, even if it's not good stuff, I don't, I don't care about the quality, right? Um, if you say you're a writer, you better be writing. You better be doing writing on a weekly basis. If you say you're an artist, you better be drawing, painting, sculpting, whatever on a weekly basis. If you're not, you're not. Sorry, you're not, right? It's like saying you're an athlete, but you've been on your couch for for 10 months um, and not hurt, right? Obviously, if you've got a a, busted leg or something, it's a little different. But the point is, if you're not doing the thing, you're not the thing. and uh, if you're not practicing your craft, you, you you don't fit the description, right? You can't call yourself that. So you you've got to work at it, um, and it's not easy. Sometimes it's it's uh, you just have to like it's when I uh, when my kids were little, you know, they go through that phase where all they want to eat is chicken nuggets, and uh, you fight them over everything that they used to like. Now they don't like anymore. You know, my youngest or my oldest son, sorry, when he was young, he. Um, you know, he'd eat anything as a kid. He loved watermelon. We'd have to cut him off of watermelon and grapes because he'd, you know, have problems on the other end. But, uh, you know, fruits, vegetables, all that kind of stuff, he'd eat anything. But, you know, then he got to the point where he didn't even want to eat. And he didn't want to eat anything except chicken nuggets, and they couldn't have little black pepper flakes on him or he'd get suspicious of them. He just didn't like to eat. And uh, one day he decided he wasn't going to eat pizza. Like we had, we had pizza for dinner, and he had a slice of pizza in front of him, and he, he did, said he wasn't going to eat it. And... So we had a battle of wills, right, where um, he he just sat in front of that piece of pizza at the dinner table for probably two hours moping. And as parents, we're walking around, you know, going on about our evening, feeling miserable um, the whole time knowing he's sitting there. But knowing if we give in that he's, you know, that he'll just he'll stop like eating anything. <laughs> Our doctor at one point just said, just feed him a multivitamin and let him eat whatever he'll eat. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But, um, and, uh, and to my son's credit, you know, he went to bed that night without eating that damn pizza. Um, so I guess he won that one, but, but he didn't get anything else. <laughs> and sometimes you just like, you don't damn the mood, right? Have you seen the, the Dune movie? You know, that's, that's one of the great parts of the book early in the book is when they're, um, uh, Paul, the the young protagonist who's going to this very violent and, and hard planet, um, who's and Paul's had a pretty soft life up to this point, to some extent. Um, his weapons trainer comes in and says something about fighting, and Paul says, "I'm not in the mood," and that ticks off the instructor, and he just goes at him hard, and basically um, makes Paul defend himself uh, to the point of if he doesn't actually do it, if he doesn't actually fight, he's going to get hurt. And, um, 
you know, it's it's that kind of damn your mood. Sit down and do it. Um, and you and like many things, you find that the minute you uh, crack open the crack open the the problem and start working on it, uh, it's fun. Uh, you know what to do, right? You just have to get started. So iron butt disease, put your butt in a chair, do some stuff. Uh, there was other thing. Oh, by the way, I did remember um, the the Pulp Fiction Generator is by Lester Dent. Uh, and it was included in the back of a book called The Thrilling Tales Omnibus, which I believe was Savage Worlds. And uh, But this Lester Dent thing is an old... Uh, story generator and Lester Dent knows what he's talking about. He wrote all the Doc Savage books and he uh, wrote in an era where he got paid by the word and you were just churning stuff out to feed your family and so there's this fairly detailed um, act by act plot generator with twists and villains and uh, all kinds of stuff in it and uh, that would be a fun one to play around with to like generate the backbone of a whole story and then have to write it you know um, and and let yourself be as pulpy as you want to be right like just have some fun with it so uh, again uh, I'll put everything I can in the show notes I've been talking too long already thanks uh, if you've made it this far congratulations good on you I hope you were listening at uh, one and a half times speed or something so it took you less time to get through it than it took me to talk it out but uh, I've enjoyed it and uh, as always I want you guys to take care of yourselves and and uh, uh, hopefully be seeing you soon at a con or in a virtual game or hearing from you as a listener you can always click in the uh, I think I have a link in the show notes I think it puts there automatically so you can leave me a voice message but you can just you can send me an email at, at rayotis at gmail.com uh, you can uh, leave me a voice message through Anchor, through the Anchor page, uh, anchor.fm slash plundergrounds. I believe there's a link there. Um, or you could just record an audio and send it to me by email, and I, I, could, I can import it easily enough. So would love to hear from you. Until next time, be good, and look out for those rest monsters.